I'm going to read the whole of Psalm 9, take extra focus on verses 1 to 10. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will praise, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they, make, that, that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are ensnared in the hands of their own work, in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on me, a sinner in need of your grace, who stands only in the righteousness of Christ and not in his own righteousness. And Father, I stand before my brothers and sisters who stand only in your righteousness as well. Lord, you are our plea. You are our righteousness our hope, our holiness. It is because you are without blemish that we, your church, is without blemish. And Lord, as we come to this psalm, this victory cry of your great work, this song of victory that you have conquered, and all the more reason, Lord, we see that you have conquered through Christ. David longed for the day where his son would sit on the throne forever and ever, and he waited with expectation but never, never saw it in the flesh. Lord, we've seen it. We've experienced it. We've tasted, tasted in his grace. We know that the nations are yours. Lord, we look at this victory song, and as David recounted your wonderful deeds, would we, Lord, recount your wonderful deeds for the last 2,000 years as you have drawn from every nation, tongue, and tribe people for your own possession and you've made them a holy nation, set apart. You've put your spirit within them and you've caused them to repent. And by faith, Lord, by faith, they are being sanctified day after day, being renewed inwardly until they reach glory. Lord, as we come to this word, Will we recount the wonderful deeds, your wonderful works in our lives as individuals and in the life as your bride, the church, the new Jerusalem, which will stand in victory on that day when you put death under your feet? 
for good. We love you, Lord Jesus. Glory and honour be yours forever and ever. Amen. Well, we come to the last sermon of 2020, and we're in Psalm 9, and I plan these at the start of the year. I plan the sermon preaching roster for the next two or three years uh, and rarely change it, and I just love how I don't really put much thought into it other than what book should we preach from. And I think Psalms is a hard book to just do all in one hit, so we use it as a bit of a filler uh, in, in between series, do five, five, six at a time. And just to have this psalm at the end of the year and the start, we're going to split it over the two weeks. We're going to preach from this first 10 verses to finish the year and then the next 11 to 20 to start the year. And instantly when I read the title, I was like, yes, I'm excited for that that we can sit at the end of the year and at the start, and as David does, look to past victories of God, current victories of God in his life, and future victories of God. And that's what we want to be doing in our life as Christians. The past, Christ has won. Currently, Christ is winning. The future, Christ will win. It's guaranteed. It's not a maybe. It's not a possibility. He has claimed it. When he said it is finished, he meant it was finished. He has won. And that is what we see in David. David is a man who is king and potentially at this time not quite king. Now, it's always hard to work out exactly when David wrote this. But if you look just under the title of the psalm in your Bible, there's a little phrase there to the choir master according to, it's a Hebrew name. Uh, it's about victory in war, maybe over Goliath. So we know that famous story, David and Goliath, or maybe over the Philistines, maybe over Absalom, uh, his son. But we know David was a warrior. So he had many battles. His big battles were against the Philistines. So we know this is a victory cry. It's a victory cry that looks at the past victories, the current victories, and the future victories. It's a victory cry that says, although I am in in affliction, although I'm in suffering, I will rejoice and sing praise to our God. Because let's remember what happened to David. He fights Goliath. He wins. He becomes a great warrior. He gets sent off to kill tens of thousands of Philistines. He wins the battle against the Philistines. Saul, the king, gets jealous, jealous. David is anointed as king but doesn't get the throne and he gets chased out of the city. David, in the midst of penning this psalm or writing it down, is inspired to thank God and praise God for all that God is doing, but he is actually in turmoil. And there's a great lesson that whether we are in affliction or blessing, whether we are prospering or suffering, We can rejoice because God is always in victory and God's victory is always certain. Take a moment to reflect on your year. How have you grown in the knowledge of God? What victories has Christ won in your life? And what victories hasn't, what what things hasn't he won? but he has given you contentment in the midst of those weaknesses. What we're going to see in this psalm is a mix of both both post-war celebration and during-war celebration, victory songs. But if we think about war, if we think about a battle, there's sacrifice involved. And at the end of the war, I can imagine there's celebrating, there's chanting, there's rejoicing, and there's sorrow because the affliction of suffering lingers on as people reflect on the lives that have been lost or the way it has reshaped them, the things they have seen. In the midst of war, you you never come out the same way. Now, when we look at war in the Psalms, David is talking about a physical war. When we look at the story of David and Goliath, David and Goliath, that was a real battle between a giant man and David, a small shepherd boy. But when we look at it spiritually, there's also depth there to say that 
Goliath is a metaphor and a, a picture of sin, and David is a picture of Christ, and Christ is going to conquer sin. So when we think of war, when we think of the battle that is ahead of us, we're not looking at the nations that we're fighting against like David was. We're looking at sin, Satan, and death. But we're in a post-war position, a post-war position when we're celebrating and rejoicing, but there's a sorrow as the scripture says, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We're in the post-war victory song, but we feel the weight of this pain that is still lingering as we are affected by the battle that we've been waging against in sin and the world and the devil. So although we're celebrating, although we're in victory, we still feel this ache because things aren't quite right. Things aren't quite finished. Death hasn't been put under Christ's feet. Sin has been dealt with. We are righteous in the eyes of God, but he is sanctifying us. We will be glorified. We live as Christians in this tension of the now and not yet, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And what we learn from David as we unpack this psalm is that knowing God and ever growing in the knowledge of God and his victories is the key to the door of sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Studying the attributes of God, his character, studying the deeds of God, recounting his wonderful deeds, his works, pondering them in your heart is the key to the door of sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Because although we are afflicted, although we are suffering, although we are aching, Although we personally, the bride, it feels like they're in pain, God is always in victory. He has conquered, he is conquering, and he will conquer. That's the guarantee. And that's the tension David lives in. We'll see in this psalm, this, this praise that flows from God as he recounts the wonderful works, or the wonderful deeds of the Lord. And in the next, Psalm 10, let me just read you the first verse. Um, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide your face in times of trouble? We go from I'm in affliction, but I see your victories, to I'm in despair and I can't see. And this is an incredible way to start the year because I'm telling you, 2021 will have tears. 2021 will have suffering. 2021 will have sorrow. Yet we as the bride can rejoice in the victory that God has won in Christ. Let's work through the first 10 verses as we do, one by one. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. As we have just said that David is probably penning this after the fight with Goliath, maybe he's in a cave running from Saul, at some point, this is post-war, post-battle. He has he's been in many battles, and it's always quite difficult to pin down which battle it was that David was writing after, but he's writing about a battle. And David always went into battle. We see it very clearly in the battle against Goliath with the expectation that he would not win the battle, but God would. David says when he goes up to Saul and Goliath is intimidating him and slandering God of Israel... He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I'll go and fight for him because I know that the God who has delivered me from the mouth of lions and bears will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. David went into the battle with the cry of the scriptures that says, not by might nor by strength, but my spirit, says the Lord. David entered into every battle with the expectation that he would win because of Christ. And when he didn't, he fell into sin, which we see with Bathsheba. He entered into that battle in his own flesh and, of course, tragically failed and was dependent upon God's grace. But what he says is, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. So in the midst of his victory, he is won against Goliath. He's defeated tens of thousands of Philistines. There was a song written about his battle. 
And in the midst of his affliction now, as he is chased out of the city by Saul, he recounts and thanks God with his whole heart. The answer to him thanking God and being able to be thankful is in the next line, which says, I will recount all your wonderful deeds. The reason he can thank God with his whole heart is because he is not there despairing. He's not there reflecting on all the suffering. Oh, Lord, you anointed me as king, but I'm in a cave. You anointed me as king and I've been chased out of the very city I should rule over. He's recounting the wonderful deeds of God. He's sitting there going, remember that victory. With one stone, I took down the great warrior, Goliath. With the sword, I took out 200 Philistines in one go. That wasn't me. That's your wonderful work, Lord. You protected me as you did when the lion and the bear came when I was just a shepherd boy. With his whole heart, he thanks the Lord. His whole heart. The Christian can with their whole heart thank the Lord. In the Old Testament, there was few and far between that were chosen by God to have a heart that would desire him. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, some of the judges, but they were pretty wacky dudes and wayward. David, we see, is a man after God's own heart. There was few men and women in the scriptures. Rahab was one of the, the women, Ruth, that were given this desire for God that is a glimpse of a New Testament believer. And what we see in them is a heart that is given over to God. Naturally, we will see as we unpack the rest of this psalm that when God judges the world in his righteous judgments, he says their heart is despicable. But there's few that he chooses that he claims, that he grabs hold of, that he keeps and he keeps them for himself that they may chase after his namesake. But what we see is the scriptures almost go out of the way to show us that they were failed people. They were failing people. Of course, we see Moses' complaints. We see Abraham's lies. We see David. David's adultery and murder, the scriptures go out of the way to show that although these men and women in the scriptures were chasing after God's heart, they were still sinful and without God they would fail. And David, when, when, when going off in his flesh, falls miserable, miserable, miserably, struggling with words today. But what we see in these Old Testament characters is a glimpse of the New Testament Christian, the one who has their spirit poured out on them. Israel did not have the spirit of God poured out on them. The church has the spirit of God poured out on them, which is why we can thank God with our whole heart. We have been born again, recreated. Our lives has changed to the point where we will represent God as we ought to and reflect God as we should have in the beginning. David's heart was for God's cause. And we'll see this in the next few verses. One of the great sins in Genesis, which I look forward to preaching next year in in, uh, the early stages of Genesis, is the Tower of Babel. And there's this famous line or the, the line that gives away the whole story and the reason it was so bad what the people did was it says they wanted to build a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. This is the great sin of all mankind, that we elevate ourselves as idols, that we want to be famous, that we want to be known. But God created us, as we've seen through the early parts of Genesis, to be representatives of him, image bearers of him. We said when he, he created the world, he created a dwelling place in Eden and said, keep it and work it, protect it, extend it. That's what those words were meaning. Well, when we look at Abraham, he had that desire. When we look at Joshua, he had that desire. These special Old Testament characters that the Lord kept and put in their heart, a desire for him to give us a foretaste, a glimpse of what it looks like to be someone who has the spirit of God in them and with their whole heart says, 
I will represent you, Lord. I will reflect you, Lord. I will show you off to the world, Lord. And we do that only by the Spirit. Not through might, nor by strength, but my Spirit, says the Lord. In verse 2, he says, I'll be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I'll be glad and exult in you. The heart of someone whose life has been kept by the Lord, the heart of someone whose life has been changed by the Holy Spirit, says, I'll be glad, not in myself, nor my works, nor my merit, or my status, or my wealth, but in you and you only, Lord. I exult not in my strength or might, but in you. I don't exult in the very fact that I just conquered the giant Goliath. I don't exult in the fact that I took out the whole of the Philistine army. I exult in you. I will sing praise to your name. This is different to the people in the Tower of Babel. We're building a tower for our sake, our namesake. We want to be known for the rest of the, the, the earth's existence for being great. But the one who has a whole heart after the Lord, the one who has been transformed by the Holy Spirit, says it is for your name's sake. I sing praise for your name. And I love the name that David uses here, O Most High. Could it be any clearer? He doesn't say Lord. He didn't say God. He'll just spell it out. Those words mean Most High. He is the highest of all. His plan is higher than mine. His purpose is higher than mine. His concern is higher than mine. What a great reminder in just the name of God that David chooses to use. Oh, most high, not me. I'm most lowly, not in humility, in pride. I am the lowest, but God is of most high. His purpose remains. His plan remains. And we see David, I will, I will recount all your wonderful deeds, is what draws his focus away from despair in his affliction and to the victory of God. It's not about David's victory. It's not about David being on the throne, David ruling Jerusalem. It's about God and his name. If this is for your namesake, Lord, David is willing to go through it because with his whole heart he seeks him or thanks him. Now we see in the passage after this intro of praise, it's sort of split up into two verses at a time. You can look through your, your Bible depending on what translation you have. But two verses at a time, and it's David recounting the wonderful works of God and naming his attributes. His attributes are part of the reason he does wonderful deeds. Because God is gracious, his work is gracious. Because God is compassionate, his work is compassionate. Because God is righteous, his judgments are righteous. And he goes through a couple of verses at a time and gives us these wonderful deeds. And he starts in verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. David recounts in thankfulness that in the midst of the battle, in the midst of fighting and, uh, and using his strength, the strength that God has given him to war, the enemy retreats at the presence of God, not at the presence of David. The enemies that come against David, Goliath, the Philistines, Absalom later in his life, the many different battles that he went for, he knows that it's not through the presence of the Israelite army because Deuteronomy tells us that they are a weak, small nation, but it was at the presence of God that was with them. The presence of God, they stumble and perish at your presence. He recounts the bigness of God, the power of God, and he says, your name is so big that at your very name, at your presence, they fall down. It reminds me of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is there praying and Judas comes with the, as the betrayer and kisses Jesus. And the guards have clubs and swords and are willing to take Jesus by force. And at one word Jesus speaks, they fall to the ground. They fall to the ground. Jesus had no need to fight with swords and clubs. 
He just spoke and they fell. At the very presence of God, the people stumble and fall over themselves. For he is a daunting, daunting, holy being to stand before. But then David says in verse 4, For you have maintained my just cause. We just spoke about David's heart. So what was his just cause? Well, for most of David's life, we see throughout the scriptures that his desire was for the Lord. He defended the Lord's name against Goliath. Goliath wasn't intimidating the Israel army. He was offending God, the God of Israel. And David was offended because Goliath was offending and blaspheming God, the God of Israel. David, when he had finally found some peace, wanted to build a dwelling place for the Lord. But the Lord said he didn't want him to do that, but his son Solomon would build the temple. David's just cause was not for his own might or strength. He was a small, lowly, weak shepherd boy. And God, through God's mighty provision and power and purpose, builds David up to be a somebody. But David's just cause was that if you would lower me, if you would flatten me in order to make your name great, then so be it because your righteous judgments are true. You sit on the throne, not me. Wouldn't it be great to hear a leader say that today? Our Prime Minister, President of the United States, one of the emperors around the world, whatever they're called. You sit on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You sit in power, God of all creation. You're the one that's calling the shots. David's just cause is, I'm the king, but I'm a little king. I am weak and miserable. I'm just going to trust in your word and follow after your commands. And Lord, please keep me, from your, keep me in your righteous judgments. And of course, to humble him, David went down that path of adultery and murder. But God in his grace and compassion redeems him. We see so clearly in the anointing of David that God looks at the heart. And people love to use this passage, but David is, we know Samuel, the prophet, comes to Jesse and says, where are your sons? I'm going to anoint one of them as king. Of course, he goes to the oldest one, and it's none of them. And God says to him, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And people misquote that to say, well, God looks at the heart. That's a good thing for me. Well, it's not a good thing for any of us. I'd rather God to look at the outward appearance. But if God looks at our heart, he sees sees the depths, he sees the intentions, he sees the motives behind all that we do. And he says, and his declaration is that the heart needs changing. Jeremiah cries, what a restless evil is my heart. Who can tame it? who can control it. And the New Testament clearly tells us in Jesus' teaching in John 3, it needs a new beginning. It needs to be changed. Everything must go. When it says we need to be born again, when it says that we need to be born again, it means the first time we were born wrong. It's very humbling to come to the Lord because it says we have to come as children. That means Everything we have known before needs to be put away. We can't bring our old life and say, I'm going to mold my old life with Christian life. We need a new life. The old is gone. The new has come. God's righteous judgment on man's heart is that it's depraved. It's depraved with self-obsession and self-elevation. And unless it is made new, it cannot be obedient to him. So our old worldview must be thrown out. And in humility, we come to the Lord day after day, pleading with him in humility that we would walk in his way. And that is David's just cause. An Old Testament character given the glimpse, giving us a glimpse, a foreshadow of what it would look like as a New Testament believer. A just cause for the name of God. You sit on the throne, Lord. A king who says, you sit on the throne. If he can have that humility, us people with no power in this world 
can say, Lord, you sit on the throne, giving righteous judgment. Verse 5, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. God's judgment on man's heart is that it should be destroyed. Death came into the world in Genesis 3. The punishment, the consequence of sin is death. Death enters in and we deserve death. The reason death is in the world is because of sin, because we have gone after our own name's sake and our just, our cause and not God's just cause. But what we see here in verse 5 is grace. We see the characteristic when David recounts the wonderful deeds of our Lord, he recounts the attributes of God, that God is a God of mercy, that God is a God of grace, that God is a God of patience. And he says it, you have rebuked the nations. God is so loving, so kind, so patient that he rebukes us. He warns us. He could destroy it. But instead, he bears with much patience. He is not slow to fulfill his promises, as Peter says, but he is patient, not wanting people to perish. Isn't this incredible that God would bear with those who try to build towers for their own namesake? That God would bear with the creation that says, no, I want to be king. I want to be on the throne. So as David recounts his wonderful deeds, he says, I recount the great the mercy of God, that he would rebuke the nations, that he would warn the nations and say, be aware that you may perish. Be aware that you may be blotted out forever. Isn't that God's Isn't that the whole of the Old Testament? The whole of the Old Testament is God pleading with his people, his nation, be, be, come back to me. Judge after judge, prophet after prophet, come back to me. Stop being a prostitute, O Israel. Stop wandering off into idolatry. Come back to me. Have, and he has mercy on them. He has mercy on them over and over again, gives them another prophet after another prophet, exiles them, brings them back. But the end is inevitable. Without his grace, without Jesus Christ, the end is perish. To perish, to be blotted out, Forever and ever. You want your name to be great, oh man? Well, your name, if it's going to be great, should be fixed in Jesus. For his is the only name that will be remembered. Otherwise, your name will be blotted out forever and ever. And if we need evidence of that, just look at the scriptures. Pharaoh says, I am God. And Egypt is destroyed and decimated. We see the Assyrians, the the, the Philistines, decimated. We see Babylon, God's instrument to destroy Israel and bring them into exile. He destroys Babylon, the the Persians, the Greeks, and eventually the Jews, Israel. In AD 70, God destroyed Jerusalem and wiped out their temple. The sacrificial system is gone. They They are no longer God's people. God's people are the nations. Those he calls from all the nations, every tribe, nation, and tongue. The warnings were there. God's graciousness was there. God's mercy was there. Yet they did not repent. They did not turn. They continued to want their name to be forever. And sure enough, God blotted them out. The enemy came to everlasting ruin, their cities uprooted, their very memory has perished. That is the summary of the New Testament cities, including his bride, Jerusalem. But he was not left brideless because he claimed a new bride in the church from all nations, not just Israel. And he calls them from every nation, tongue and language. And they are called the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. So in the midst of God's consequences for promoting our name rather than his, we see very clearly that there is grace to the nations in that he will claim wider and further 
and build a kingdom from among all the nations. Of those he will put his spirit into and turn to himself, who with their whole heart will recount his wonderful deeds and thank him and be glad in him and not themselves. They will promote his name and represent him as they ought to, like we were in Genesis 1 and 2. In verse 7 and 8, he continues to reflect on the wonderful works of God and thinks of God in his heavenly place. And it's a contrast between these nations that think they're powerful and going to be blotted out to what is truly powerful, God as king and God's kingdom. The contrast between they, those who promote their name, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, the Assyrians, the Philistines, the Romans, the high priests and the Pharisees of Jerusalem, they promote their name and their kingdom is decimated. But God, verse 7, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The contrast between the nations who promote their name and God who is enthroned forever is that God is always in victory. You think there's a power nation at the moment? It's the kingdom of God. That is the power nation at the moment. It is not America or China or Russia or any of these names. It is the kingdom of God. The contrast we see so clearly is those who promote their own name whether it be Pharaoh, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar, will be crushed. And it leads us to some amazing pictures in the Scripture. Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, God is so gracious to Nebuchadnezzar. Read his story. King of Babylon, given the power from God to conquer God's people and bring them into exile, and God, in his graciousness and mercy, gives him dreams. And he gives him a dream of a statue in Daniel 2, and it's a statue that has a golden head, a silver body, bronze legs, and on its feet it has clay and iron. And then it says a hand that is not a human hand cuts a rock, and it falls and smashes the statue. And that rock turns into a mountain and consumes the whole world. God is enthroned. Daniel tells us that the image of the rock is God. God's kingdom crushing the nations of the earth, destroying the powerhouse of Babylon, Persia, Greeks, the Romans and the Jews, and growing into a nation that will consume the whole earth and a nation that will consume and bring forth from all different nationalities. God is enthroned, whether it's Trump ruling or Biden or Morrison or our other guy, I don't know his name. God is enthroned and his kingdom is consuming and it is growing and it is going to conquer. There's victory. We're not losing this battle. Think of Isaiah 47. This is probably my favorite, one of my favorite passages. I said that about John 1 too. They're both up They're for different reasons. This is an incredible picture. Ezekiel 47, God is speaking to Ezekiel and Ezekiel is asked, he's like, measure the depth of the water. And it's a puddle. And he's like, it's ankle deep. And he says, measure again. He's like, it's at my knees. And he says, measure again. It's at my waist. And he does this and he says, it's over my head. And finally, it says, the the puddle turned into a river, a river of life. And there was trees that had green leaves, which represents life and fishermen that fished in it all along the banks. And then it says, in Ezekiel 47, it says, and the water flowed, the river flowed into the sea and made the sea fresh. The river flowed into the sea and made the sea fresh. What we're seeing there is that God's kingdom will start small. God's throne, God's established justice will start small and it is going to grow and become a river that turns the sea into fresh water. This is not a small kingdom. This is a victorious kingdom. This is a powerful kingdom. This is a throne that lasts forever. This is a throne of justice. God's kingdom sweeps over the earth in a small, lowly, 
humble fashion and eventually consumes the whole thing. God's kingdom from every nation, tribe, as the churches like ours, little and insignificant in the world's eyes, will faithfully continue to preach the gospel, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the depravity of man, the the salvation of Christ, the death and the resurrection and the new hope of the kingdom, and we will see the gospel go forth. In verse 9, he says, The Lord is the stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. The righteous judge is our very shelter. The one who is enthroned forever and ever, the one who has this kingdom that will conquer all kingdoms, that has this kingdom that's so big would turn salt water into fresh, The attribute of God that David is reflecting upon here is that the stronghold of God is our peace in chaos. His justice is there in the midst of injustice. His loving rebuke is there in order to refine us. He sent Jesus to be the all-sufficient stronghold and shelter from his wrath. Have you noticed that in the Psalms? That the stronghold, the refuge that we have in God is sheltering us from his wrath. That's what's the reason we need a stronghold, the reason we need a fortress, a, a, a shelter is because we are about to bear the, the wrath of God upon us, which would destroy us. But Jesus steps in the way and Jesus, as God, consumes the wrath of God on our behalf. Consumes it. Completely, without fail, nothing left for us, no condemnation whatsoever because we are under the stronghold of the Lord. And in our times of oppression, in our times of trouble, we don't wallow into self-pity. As Hosea says, we don't lie on our bed and don't call out to God. We call out to God and we say, you are my stronghold, you are my fortress, you are the God on my throne, I will recount your wonderful deeds. As David is in affliction, in suffering, chased out of the city he should rule, he says, God is my stronghold, God is my fortress. As we are in the midst of battle against sin, temptation into the flesh, temptation to elevate our name, we say, God, you are my stronghold, Christ is my stronghold, he has worn your wrath, I am in his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Let us not have an outlook on life that is unbiblical and pessimistic. Why, O oh church, why, church, are we so downcast? As Psalm 42 says, hope in God. The outlook is not pessimistic. The outlook is optimistic. As a Christian, we conquer as a Christian, we overcome sin because we are in the, Victoria, in, in the victorious one, Christ Jesus. Look at verse 10. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have forsaken. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know his name put their trust in you. O Lord, O Lord. Have not fors- oh, you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You are secure in the Lord. You are secure in Jesus Christ. In Revelation, it says those who are his have his name written on their forehead. It means you've been claimed by him. You can't be lost. So when we look at our outlook, when we look at 2021, as we think about what is coming for us, When we look at 2022 and 2030 and 2040 and however long God has us here in this life, the outlook is not in vain. The outlook is not pessimistic. The outlook is optimistic. Christ has victory. As David sits and looks in wherever he is riding, the cave on the brook of Kishron, wherever he is running from Saul, he says there is victory. 
He looks to the victory when he will be on the throne. He looks to the victory of Christ. We look to the victory of the church being established on earth and Christ returning and putting death under his feet. We have a hopeful outlook. We have a, 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 an expectation to say that God will not forsake us if we seek his face. And guess what? He's given you the spirit to seek his face. It's not even in your strength that you seek his face. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. So would 2021 be a year of seeking his face? And as we seek his face, as we dive into the word and unpack Genesis, as we read it in our own time and read different passages and read the Psalms, we will see that the Psalms and the book is a victory song of Christ, a victory song of God. It is not hopeless. It is hopeful. And the church needs to arise. We sing that song, arise, O church, arise. Arise because we will win. In your workplace, you can have victory. In your homes, you can have victory. And in your neighborhood, you can have victory. Because we are with the king who sits on the throne. When he pours out his spirit, communities change. That is a guarantee. We read of all the great awakenings in the past, Pentecost, the Reformation in 1500, the Great Awakening in the 1700s, the Welsh Revival. God can do the same today. His pattern is to pour out his spirit on his church and give them a great affection for his word and a boldness for the gospel to go forth. And we will see next week that when we recount his wonderful deeds, we should tell of it to all the peoples. Church, we are sitting on the brink of a great victory. We're sitting in the power of victory. And it starts by seeking his face. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's made our hearts inclined to him. Church, we need to seek his face. We're four days from New Year. And I would plead with you as I would plead with you any time of the year to have a plan to seek his face. Now, that's just a saying that has little meaning. But what does it mean to study your Bible? to pray. Now that creep, that, that sounds like a big task, but let me, let me give you an idea of how to read the Bible. You can read the Bible casually and you can read the Bible in in-depth study. I think when people say, oh, you need to study the Bible, nerves break out in everyone and they're like, well, that's going to take me hours every day. You don't have to exhaust every passage you read Read large chunks of scripture. Read it casually. Read it like a novel. Get to know the story of God. God. There's two tensions to hold. We do devotions where we want to understand and unpack, pack, and that takes work and takes time. And then we want to read it for leisure, to know God. As we want to know our friend or spouse or someone in our life. Don't see Bible study as a big in-depth thing. Maybe you've got five minutes. Read a chapter, but read it in context. Have a plan about it. A Bible in a year, a Bible, the Bible in two years, the Bible in six months, if you want to read even larger chunks. The Puritan said once, I can't remember which one, before you see any other face, seek the Lord's face. My discipline this year, and hold me account, I'd love for you too, is that the first face I seek is the Lord's and the last face I seek is the Lord's each day. That's my plan. I read casually and I read in depth. And the same goes for prayer. When we say pray, church, there's two, there's many different ways we can pray, but the, the, what I want to put before you is there's casual praying and there's intercession. Intercession is hard, laborious prayer. It's when you lock yourself in your room, you're pleading with God, you're asking for breakthrough in people's lives. It's hard work. But there's casual prayer. When Paul says pray without ceasing, pray consistently, he's not interceding all the time. Talk to God. Go for a walk. Think to God. Ask him. Tell him about your feelings. Tell him about how tired you are. God, I'm weak. I'm anxious. God, I'm feeling joy right now. 
Just talk to him casually. Let us not come to the word and Satan will lie to us and say, this is a big deal, this is going to be hard and he'll tempt us away from it. You can read it casually, you can read it in depth, you can pray deeply or you can pray casually. God wants to know you and seeking his face can be casual as well as laborious. Would we with victory in sight, with victory in sight, have the prayer of 2021 be Psalm 27.4, which says, One thing, Lord, I ask of you, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Would that be our prayer? One thing that I would ask of you, that I would seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Let me pray. Father and King, ruler of heaven and earth, the one who sits enthroned forever and ever, whose judgments are right, who rebukes the nations with mercy and compassion, who conquers the nations and destroys them to establish his own kingdom, that his name may be most high. Lord, we are thankful. We give you great praise, Lord, for you are mighty to save. And in Christ, we have victory. Our past is redeemed, our present makes sense, and our future is secure. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we will go on without fear of the unknown. That, Lord, in affliction, we will recount your wonderful deeds and remember your past, your current, and your future victory, that the church will be established, that the church is secure, that the church is your nation, your bride, whom you poured out your blood for, whom you shelter and are her strong, strong tower. Lord God, give us great desire for your name, and I pray with David that our one thing would be to gaze upon your beauty, to understand your attributes, your characteristics, and to stand in victory, to have the key to that door of sorrowful yet always rejoicing is to know you, Lord, and to ever be growing in the knowledge of you. Mighty Father, in the power of your Holy Spirit, descend upon your church and into this neighbourhood and in surrounding neighbourhoods and workplaces with a passion and an optimism that says the gospel can go forth with power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.